Good morning. How are we doing? We're good? Yeah? Looking forward to an Easter break? Yeah, maybe. Some of you just like to work on through, don't you? I know. You are workaholics, you. We're carrying on our series, No Other King, for Easter. And um, this week, we're going to be looking at, if Me'ufa Dufa works, the King of Love. Now, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to explore that in a minute. It's a potentially an unlikely place to start, but we're going to have a go. I was uh, relayed a story um, some years ago, and uh, this guy was just leaving the house to go and get married, and... Um, the, one of the parents of this individual turned to him and said, we're so glad that you haven't brought shame on the family. He was like, okay. And he pondered that and he walked away. And he's like, what do I do with that? Because the premise was that we love you as long as you behave. And the priority was how we're perceived by those outside. And that if you had messed up, that would have brought shame and that would have broken the relationship. But we're so glad you didn't. You think of all the things that could potentially be communicated to somebody when they're leaving home to go get married. You think that's probably not the one you want to walk away with in your ears. Love is a challenging thing. For some of us, love invokes a whole sequence of ideas. It's positive, it's engaging, it's exciting. It, it presents a whole load of memories of good times. For others of us, love, it presents what could have been but wasn't. It presents the absence of that which your heart longed for but didn't present. Or indeed, maybe it was a mixture of the two. But what we see in the king of love, in Jesus, is such an overwhelming, inclusive, accepting, unashamed love that actually the more we look at him, we know his constancy for us, his permanence of presence, his unchanging nature, which leaves us with no doubt that we are his. And he is ours. Are you there in Matthew 1? Some of you may know this off by heart. Some may not. Okay. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot the king, David The king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and on it goes. And you think, what on earth is he talking about? Where on earth are we going with this? Reality is, when you start to unpack some of the lives of these individuals that are in the genealogy of Jesus, you think, whoa, hang on. Did you really pick them to be in there? What inspired Matthew, the ex-tax collector, to write the gospel? It was his passion to see the narrative of the life of Jesus Christ proclaimed across the world. And he starts off saying, look, I'm going to root for you the historical narrative of who this Jesus is, and you're going to follow his lineage so that you understand he is the Messiah. He is the one that the prophecies speak of and he is the one that fulfills them he's the son of David he is the Messiah of Israel he's the king of kings he is it but do you know what sometimes in our story we've got things we might not want to share but when the Holy Spirit speaks to Matthew and he says write this down he leaves nothing out and in this genealogy are some tricky characters and you think to yourself hmm not sure I would have put that in there let's have a look at a few of these verse 3 Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar seems like a very easy straightforward sentence doesn't it Yeah, great. Until we discover when we read back that actually Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. And you start doing the maths. You go, hang on. Judah had two children with Tamar who was married to one of his sons. How does that work? Well, she was originally married to one of his sons. He died. She was married to another of his sons and he died. And the the social structure was such that actually she needed to have the covering of a household for security and safety. And so the promise is that if one son dies, another will take care and then another, right? But one of the sons was wicked and so he took her as his wife. He did what was necessary for her to have children, but he refused to finish the task, if you've got an understanding, and he was disgraceful. He died. Now, Judah's other son was too young to get married. And so what happens is Judah says to her, look, just wait and we'll see. Go back to your father in Canaan and we'll see and and we'll sort it out when he's old enough. But what happens is Judah forgets and he just leaves her to it. And she's got no household covering, right? And so she's a widow, and widows really struggle. 
And so she thinks to herself, right, I need a solution. And she's praying to God and looking for a solution. And so she goes to this festival, right? Now, Judah's wife has died, okay? And he goes up to the festival. And while he's there, he's thinking, right, well, um, I might sleep with a prostitute. I think I will. Um, here's a lovely lady. I'll go and sleep with her. He approaches her. He hasn't got the cash that he needs. So he gives her his signet ring, his staff, and his cord. There you go. Look, here's down payment. And he sleeps with her. And then later on, he finds out that Tamar's pregnant. And he's like, she's wicked. She's outrageous. She gets brought out to be stoned. And he says, who got you pregnant? Well, whoever the owner of this staff and this cord and this signet ring. And Judah's like, oh my days, they're mine. He was unfaithful to the covenant promise. And so he forced Tamar into a desperate situation where she had to recover coverage and lineage that she was being robbed of. And he proclaims, she is more righteous than me. The Holy Spirit includes this story in the genealogy of Jesus. If you go back, um, you actually have the scenario where you've got Ruth, who is a Moabite. And the Moabites initiate a whole religious practice of worship of Moloch, which includes child sacrificing. And so if you were a Moabite, it was seen as absolutely outrageous and you wouldn't associate with them if you were Jewish. It was just absolutely appalling. You just wouldn't associate. And yet in the Old Testament, we have this amazing story of God blessing Ruth, the Moabitess, blessing her and bringing her into covenant relationship and into family with Boaz. An amazing picture of how God reaches in into any culture, any situation and rescues people. And then, of course, later on, we've got verse 6. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon, the wife of Uriah. Hang on. So he, got, he begot Solomon. He had Solomon as a child through somebody else's wife. But we all know the story of David's adultery and murder. So he actually arranges for Uriah to go to the front of the battle, which David should have been participating in, and he gives instruction when in the thick of the battle, when it's all kicking off, tell the others to step back, leave Uriah isolated so he gets hacked down. Because when he's dead, I can then take Bathsheba that I know is already pregnant and I can officially take her as my wife and it'll all be good, right? We're covered. <laughs> no shame, no embarrassment, no guilt. We've got it covered. It's not a problem. And you think, my word, these people are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. This is the story that the Holy Spirit is willing to insert Jesus into the middle of. And go, do you know what? Despite all this chaos, despite all these bad decisions, despite all of this rubbish, Jesus is going to come and he's going to redeem the whole lot. And he's not ashamed of these names because the Holy Spirit puts them at the beginning of Matthew for us to read. What does that tell us about the nature and characteristic of this king of love? What does it tell us about his ways towards us as a humanity? 
where he knows we're like dust. He knows our fragility. He knows our lifespan is short. And yet he reaches out and he recovers that which was lost. And he values us so incredibly highly. Jesus appears again and again to be unashamed of the people that he is associated with. When we go into the middle of the beginning of the story, right in the thick of it, is the fact that God chooses Mary, probably around 13, 14 years of age, to actually bear Jesus in her womb. And so the very beginning of his story is set in this image of Mary going to Bethlehem, which is the family village, the origin. Everybody go back to their place to get written into the census. And there's no room. How can there be no room when that's the place of your family? What, you've got no relatives that will take you in? Well, why is that? Why is there no room? Because those family members are like, no, you're pregnant outside of marriage. We're not going to associate. We're not going to have you in here. It's the baseline of the story. Jesus associates with that which is outcast, associates with that which is perceived to be irredeemable. And he has the Holy Spirit include this in his story. Matthew doesn't edit out the bad bits. He includes them all. As we go through Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they get annoyed with the fact that Jesus wants to associate with people they don't like. In Luke 5.30, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? They proclaim. Luke 7.34, Look at him, this Jesus. He's a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why would you think he's a glutton and a drunk? It's because he's hanging out with gluttons and drunks. These are the people that he's willing to be associated with. People like me. People that aren't perfect, that haven't got it right yet. Who've got a backstory of shame or guilt. That they've got stuff that they need to be forgiven of. And Jesus' answer not come for those who are well. I've come for those who are sick. And there's a challenge in there, isn't there? It's like, really, Pharisees, do you really think you're well? Do you really think that's the case? When a woman who is a prostitute approaches him and touches him and with tears wipes his feet with her hair... They proclaim, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was touching him, for she is a sinner. And he teaches them and he says, do you know what? Those that have been forgiven much, love much. It's a balanced equation. 
when you start to realize the weight of how far we've fallen from the beauty and the glory of God, we start to understand the weight of his love that raises us up. And we think, oh my, oh my, he's done so much and it just flips the scales off the charts. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, we see this picture of Jesus standing amongst those that his death and resurrection have purchased. And he says that he is not ashamed to call us family. Not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus knows us intimately. He wants to walk amongst us and be known by us. And he lets us know he knows us completely. And he's unashamed to associate with us, to be known by us, for us to know him and be identified in him. It's an amazing picture. The more you stare at him, the more you realise who he is, the more how beautiful he becomes, the more outrageously glorious you start to realise, how can this be? How can this be? That this one has died for me. That I can now come into the presence of God covered by him. Jesus taught his disciples saying this, This is my commandment, love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The Apostle Paul takes that and he expands it in his letter to Rome in chapter 5. And he says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time and died for us sinners. Now, when most people would not be willing to die for, now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us in this. For by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He unpacks what Jesus gives to the disciples as an initial command and an example. And he goes, look, do you know what? Some of us might dare to die for somebody who's amazing. But Christ died for us all. So we think back to the genealogy of all the behaviours and everything that went on there and everything that's gone on through humanity. And we say, really? Does this Jesus pay for it all on the cross? Does he resolve it all? Does he make it all right? And the answer is yes, he does. Yes, he does. This unconditional, unmerited, unworthy love that he pours out, knowing us absolutely, individually, perfectly, he's able to say, as we say to him, forgive me, I forgive you. It is done. And that's part of the reason why they crucified him in the first place. Because he said to the guy lying on the mat who'd been lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. What is it easier for me to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. But I say to you that you might know who the Son of Man is, get up and walk. And so this man stands up 
in front of everybody. And in that moment, the physical healing represents the spiritual reality that Jesus has authority to give his life, lay it down and take it back up again. And stand in our place before God that we can be righteous as he is. Easter can become a little bit of a chocolate box, picturesque type thing, can't it? And there's some lovely things to celebrate as we go into springtime and it's beautiful. But the reality of the cross is so much more than a picture box representation of a cross on a hill. It was brutal, unbelievably brutal. But Jesus says this of himself. You know it well, John three sixteen. For this is how God, me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is how we, he's saying, love the world, love you all. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Sometimes it's hard to grasp exactly what's going on. And Hebrews chapter 12 helps us unpack that a little bit more. The writer says this, Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son of God, eternal, before anything eternal always has been, he also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives of slaves to the fear of dying. Earlier on, just before Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he's crucified, he says to the disciples, the ruler of this world is coming for me, but he has no claim in me. And what he's talking about is Satan, who's the ruler of this world, is coming for him. He's coming for him through the religious system, the religious structures, and he's coming for him through Judas's betrayal and deception. He's coming for me. I know he's coming for me. But you know what? He's got no claim in me. There's nothing in me, he's saying, that Satan can go, aha, he's failed the royal law of God. He's imperfect. He cannot enter into the courts of God without receiving judgment. He's got impurity in him and the holiness and purity of God will consume him if he dares step in there. Aha, I've got him. Satan's got nothing. He's got nothing on Jesus at all. He's lived 33 point whatever years and Satan's got nothing on him. No claim in me, he says. No claim. And so by going to the cross and dying and then offering us belief in him, we get covered in the same respect. Satan now has no claim in us. No claim. For the father looks at us and he sees the work of his son. He sees the purity of his son and he says, I see my son. 
I see you too. It's not like you're not seen. But I see my son. I see his life. I see his death. I see his resurrection. I see the power of my son. I see his purity. I see his holiness. You're covered. Come on in. This is the reality that we're talking about that is being spoken of here in Hebrews. Why did Christ come? Why did he die on a cross? This is it. It completely removes our debt of sin before the face of God. Everything that we've ever failed to do, every attitude that was wrong, every error, intentional or otherwise, just missing the mark by a billion years, he covers it. In me it's done. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. You just contemplate that for a moment. He took it away by nailing it to a cross. He took it into himself, had it nailed to a cross, so it was removed from us. And this is the king of love. The king who unashamedly walks amongst the people and goes where there are gluttons and there are drunkards and spends so much time with them that people go, you're a drunkard and a glutton. You take meth. You take heroin. You're with prostitutes. That's this Jesus. That's this king of love who so dwells amongst the broken that people start saying, you're broken too. This is our king. John 1, 4, 18. John really has a handle on his relationship with Jesus. You read his gospel and he's like, I'm the one who Jesus loves. He's got it. He's got it. He knows it. He knows it. He is. He says this, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. Elsewhere in Hebrews, we have this picture of being able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because Jesus has made it possible. He's made the way. We can step into the holy place. We can be with Father God because Jesus made it possible for us. We can be there without fear. There's this picture in the Old Testament of what a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of a living God. But not for those of us who are covered by the life of Christ. It's an absolute place we want to dwell for our names are written on his hands. It's where we want to be. It's no longer a terrible thing to fall into his hands. It's a glorious, joyous thing. It's where we want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else. Better a thousand, better is one day there than a thousand elsewhere. Nowhere else, God. I want to be there. It's this king of love who associates with us, knows us absolutely. And says, no, I'm not, having, I'm not having any shame. I'm not having any guilt step in the way between you and me. I'm not having it. 
and I'm going to express, I'm going to get Matthew to write it in my genealogy at the beginning that this is my family tree and this is what I came to redeem. And then throughout the Gospels, I'm going to have him write about every time I spent time with the broken and with those that everybody else rejected because their lives were hard and they were struggling with addiction. They were struggling with sexual immorality. They were struggling with whatever it is. I was there and I was with them. So much so, I got identified with them. And that's where I wanted to be. Because the, you know, one of the writers says this, it's, most, it's almost more peculiar that God becomes human than it is for a man to die. We're used to man dying, right? We've done it for thousands of years. But for God to become flesh, for God to so associate with his creation, to enter into his creation and be known as us, just blows your mind. It's like, I will enter into the thick of the mess and I will redeem it. That's where our king of love is most active. And so as we approach Easter, as we explore this king, this wondrous one, we find that his embrace is one that we... Well, get the clicker. Clicker's not working. Annabelle, could you move it on for me? See if it works. There we go. We find he's the one who not only embraces us, but embraces the world that we interact with as well. Galatians 4, 4 to 6, we looked at it last year under the title of an offensive play, this work of grace that we enjoy. It says this, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. I want us to take a few minutes just to absorb some of the things that we've looked at, that the gospel writers, that Paul's been writing and that we've been reading this morning. This embrace you might find really hard to accept or you might find it really easy. But it's true It's founded in historical fact. Christ lived, died, and rose again. It's historical fact. And because of that, we're able to proclaim the resurrection of the dead and life for those that follow Christ for eternity. That's fact. And so we find ourselves today, wherever we're at, and we can ask Holy Spirit to give us understanding, God, show me. Show me where I'm at in this picture of embrace. Am I the other side of the room, quizzically looking at Christ and not quite sure who he is? Am I up close in that entangled embrace, letting everything go and actually no longer carrying my own weight? Or am I somewhere in between? Just allow Holy Spirit to speak to you for a few minutes now.
And I encourage you that if you find yourself across the room, that his embrace is open towards you and there's nothing, nothing that can stand in the way of him embracing you other than your own free choice. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this most outrageous of truths. That you are the king of love who stepped into this world and have rescued us, purchased us by your own death. And in your resurrection, you've proved that you have power over death. That you are the eternal God. And that as we confess that you are Christ, that we confess you are God, and we seek your forgiveness for everything we've ever done that's offended you, we get covered by your perfect life. And we're able to once again be in relationship with God. We thank you for this outrageous truth. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come in your manifest power and reveal this king of love to us every single day. Open our eyes to see clearly who he is, to see what he's like, and to walk this life with him, knowing this outrageous love that has so tipped the scales that we find our sin, everything we've ever done, has been flung away as far as the east is from the west. Amen.